Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, President and Editor-in-Chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. Well, hey, everybody. It's Raj Kumar uh, here for another episode of This Week in Global Development. It's great to be with everybody in the global development community following along as we talk about the big headlines of the week here at DevEx. Uh, I'm joined by my colleague, Anna Goel. Hey, Anna. Hi, Raj. Great to be here as always. Yeah, good, good to have you here. Anna is our managing editor at DevEx. And a uh, longtime guest is back with us today once again, and that's George Ingram. Hey, George. Uh, morning, Raj. Nice to be here. Yeah, good to be with you too. And everybody knows you, George, but you, of course, are a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in the Center for Sustainable Development among the many, many other hats that you have worn and continue to wear around, across our community. So, so good to have you here, George. Um, and in fact, you and I just saw each other the other night at a localization dinner. And so I thought maybe we could start among the many headlines we've got this week to cover with one about localization. There was a report issued by the Council on Foundations uh, that DevX covered that showed really just a very modest increase in aid dollars, foundation philanthropy dollars going to, to local organizations. It went from 12% of all foundation giving that they were covering in this report during the 2011 to 2015 period up to just 13% in the 2016 to 2019 period. I know this sounds like ancient history, like you know, why are we talking about 2019? But that's what the report uh, found. I guess I wonder if it was surprising to you that that by 2019, it was still such a modest amount. And then George, do you think things are moving in the right direction? Like do you, you think now if we did this report, if they had up-to-date data that we would be seeing a, a really significant move in foundation grant funding going to, to local works? Uh, interesting question, Raj. You know, I was not surprised by the data. Um, if anything, it's a little better than what the official donors are doing. I think the interesting thing, the background to that dinner and that pledge of 15 U.S. foundations to commit to localization is it's really they're signing on to a pledge that the donors made, that a dozen donors made 18 months ago uh, that was led by USAID and Norwegians. And the interesting thing which I will be looking for you to report on, is in the next week or two, those donors get back together to have a stock taking to see how well they're doing. And I will be looking to that, and I will be looking to see what the private donor is doing. I sat next to one a woman from a very small foundation, and they've been giving 90% of their funding directly to local organizations for a decade. So I think you really almost have to look at this foundation by foundation and to see what those foundations have learned who've been doing this for quite a while. Yeah, that's a great point. I was actually in Geneva at the big summit when these donors signed on, uh, it was about a year ago now, to this pledge to, to make localization a core part of what they do. 
And it was really, it's a great example of kind of a foreign policy of USAID, you know, because USAID under Samantha Power obviously has made localization a big focus and kind of went out to the other OECD donors and said, you need to do this too, you know, and, and convince many of them to do it. So you're right. It's interesting to, to kind of take stock of how that has actually gone. And it certainly is something we'll cover. Um, you know, localization is sort of the, the story that doesn't end. I mean, everybody is interested in, in part because, as you say, there's still such such a long way to go. Um, we had another story this week that kind of gets into, I mean, in a way, some of the challenges of going local. Anna, maybe you could tell everybody about the, the exclusive that we published about community healthcare workers, in particular in Nigeria. Sure. Um, so it involves a program called the Saving Lives and Livelihoods Initiative. Uh, it's actually the largest public health partnership between a global philanthropic organization and African institution, uh, in this case, MasterCard Foundation and Africa CDC. Uh, it actually totals about $1.5 billion. So we're talking serious money here. Um, but as with any kind of large, sprawling enterprise with multiple actors, um, both in capitals around the world and on the ground, problems can arise. That's exactly what happened here. Um, you're dealing with several, uh, not just MasterCard Foundation and Africa CDC, you've got a whole bunch of implementers, government agency, uh, government agencies. Apparently something got lost in translation here that resulted in some workers in Nigeria not getting paid. I think the key here to this exclusive uh, by Sarah Derving is that there, there isn't really like a smoking gun. Um, it's much more of a nuanced picture of a lack of coordination, um, lack of collaboration. There were no standards of payment agreed to in the beginning. This led to governments recruiting workers without formal contracts, auditors determining they couldn't be paid without those contracts. Some of this has been resolved, but there are still workers who say that they're owed back pay. And so long story short, I think this is kind of an object lesson in the importance of communication when you have people on the ground and a lot of these actors and stakeholders in a massive endeavor. And I think it also gets to the question of what is fair treatment to community health workers on the ground, which are often the backbone of the health systems across sub-Saharan Africa. And should they be offered these more formal long-term employment contracts as opposed to these kind of sporadic short-term health campaigns that we often see on the ground. Yeah, I think it was just last well, week. Go ahead, George. Yeah, let me jump in here because there's a this highlights a bigger problem in our development space. And that is, it shows that process is more important than people. The process of not having contracts in place was more important than not wealthy people who needed the income from the work they were doing, not getting that pay. And it's, it's the green eye shade people who are important to make sure there's not a lot of corruption, but they too often rule and interfere with, with having effective development. And the donors, everybody needs to be willing to take a little more risk in order to get the development impact we're looking for. Yeah, it's this culture of risk aversion which we've talked about before, right? And it, in some ways it comes from the fact that mostly development funding still comes from government agencies and government agencies are, you know, by nature, you know, stewards of taxpayer dollars and they've got to be very cautious and careful. But in some ways we've tied ourselves in knots as a development community, as you're saying, 
And in this case, the victims of it were community health workers who were doing their job for months and months and not getting paid. And I think, you know, there's a great quote in the article. I can't off the top of my head uh, think of who said it, but George, this gets to your point where there is this risk continuum and audits are designed to to flag uh, fraud, corruption, but they're not designed to flag payments for for work done uh, and work that goes unpaid. And so this also gets to the risk aversion that that we're frequently talking about. Exactly. It's only one side of the ledger that the compliance regime has been set up to capture, and that's making sure that you know, the aid dollars aren't wasted in fraud or abuse, but not the other side, which is that the, the health workers actually get paid at the end of the day. Uh, and it's not easy, as you say, the, the nuance, it's a very nuanced story, and you can see how challenging it is. And it, it does point in many ways to what, you know, a lot of people who advocate for community health workers, I was just at the Milken Institute Global Health Summit uh, that was here in DC a week ago. Um, and I was on stage talking about community health workers with a number of leaders and experts in that space, including Atul Gawande at USAID. And really, you know, the consensus is ultimately countries need to have a permanent paid workforce of community health workers. And, and if you do, you can, you know, largely avoid challenges like this. But the current reality is, you know, funding mostly comes through projects and people are kind of like irregular workers. They're brought on as needed, they're paid, you know, separately through these individual projects. Sometimes they have different apps on their phone, uh, you know, different reporting requirements for each project. And, you know, it's complicated. It's not like a full-time professionalized job in many cases. And it leads to exactly these kinds of challenges. Maybe we can dive into another story um, this week. There were so many to pick from, but kind of staying on this agenda of, of process and of localization, kind of how to do development better, um, you know, we had a story this week about cash aid and, and, and cash transfers. Maybe you can, uh, Anna, just tell us a little bit about that piece. Sure. Um, well, as a lot of our audience probably knows, it involved um, uh, Rory Stewart, who is special advisor to Give Directly. He's former head of DFID, which was the um, development agency for the UK. And our story kind of talks about what he talks about, which is unconditional cash transfers, and he calls them the most uh, radical form of localization. Um, but at the same time, he um, expresses the opinion that that many people are scared of them um, because it it, on, it threatens their job, in essence. Um, it, they make up unconditional cash transfers make up a very minute portion of development uh, assistance. It's much higher for humanitarian assistance. And of course, you know, if you give people money, you don't necessarily need to, you know, as he said, uh, you know, assess everything, listen, do studies. Um, you leave it to people. It's a trust based system. It's could threaten, put people out of jobs in the in development enterprise because it can be an enterprise. So I think he has some provocative views on the reasoning of why an unconditional cash transfers haven't been embraced uh, in the on the development sphere. They've been more embraced on, embraced on the humanitarian front. You could always count on Rory to be provocative, which is fantastic. And we had him on stage uh, on our UN General Assembly Summit. Um, and, and he similarly, at that point, he was still the CEO of Give Directly. Now he's a senior advisor there. But Similarly, was a real evangelist for the opportunity here. 
And as the piece says, you know, he, he believes there's only 3% of development spending is, is uh, in the form of cash assistance, and it's around 21% of humanitarian spending. He has a particular quote in here that I'd love to get your take on, George. He says um, that there's strong vested interests against cash, and he quotes, if you were in the U.S., for instance, congressmen want to make sure that farmers in Idaho are getting grants to grow maize. Um, you know, he, he's saying essentially it's the agricultural lobby that is, as one example in the U.S., pushing against the use of cash transfers. Does that ring true to you as somebody who you know has worked on the Hill and knows this space very well? Absolutely. Um, and. You know, it's I mean, the whole it goes against the nature and the culture, one of the whole development industry that you and I are a part of. Um, and it goes against specific interest of of U.S. Uh, sectors and industry. And the evidence that we have is that cash in the hands of poor people who need more income is 80%, pick your figure, well used. Um, and if you believe in localization, what can be more local than getting cash directly in the hands of people? And, and maybe for a future interview for you, my, my colleague at Brookings, Homi Karas, is working with some folks to try to put together a global fund on cash transfer as sort of the ultimate goal of how to achieve the SDGs by putting more income into the hands of individuals on a at scale. Yeah, he's got a Rory's got another story, uh, quote in this piece that I want to run past you, George. He says NGOs are very excited about the localization agenda because it means money going to their staff. You know, he's saying essentially NGOs are going to have to assess things, write reports, do capacity building. Um, you know, it's it's maybe a different approach to development than just the, the traditional Global North NGOs getting all the money and doing all the work. But but he's still saying localization is essentially um, part of the problem in a way that in, in the way it's currently conceived. Is there is there some truth to that? How do you how do you see it? Well, I think the the. INGOs are very mixed on the issue of localization. Some of them are strongly behind it. Uh, some of them are not so eager to see it implemented. Um, my problem with the way localization is discussed today is there's no conversation of what is the role of INGOs. And it's sort of put in terms of everything should be done locally without any conversation consideration that we live in a global world and maybe the best solutions to challenges are some combination of local priorities implementations identifying the challenges with pulling in solutions from other countries elsewhere around the world and i think we need a better balance and how we talk about localization and making it a, a truly global effort and not just a local effort. Yeah, and is it the end goal or is it just kind of a tool to get us to the end goal of development? And I think sometimes it's seen as sort of the end goal in and of itself, 
and there's a real danger, it just gets taken over by lawyers and accountants who say, okay, we can figure out how to do it. If this is the goal, we can quote unquote localize. We just need to have local boards and local staff. And, you know, we can find ways to, to check all the right boxes and say, we've done it. Um, whereas I think the, the real proponents behind this see it more as shifting power and, and a really fundamental change in the way we conceive development work. And, and I agree, it's people are really torn, even within the international NGOs. I talked to lots of international NGO staff who are really torn about the right approach here. Um, well, I like the way you put it. Is it a tool or the end goal? And the end goal is development impact. And you get to development impact by bringing the best solutions uh, to the challenges. And for me, localization is a very important tool to change the culture of donors and to shift the power to local organizations. But that end goal of the best impact on development may be global collaboration and partnerships. Are you looking for the inside story on what's happening at organisations like the World Bank, USAID or the Gates Foundation? Then you need to be reading DevX Pro. I'm Jessica Abrahams and I'm the editor of DevX Pro. Pro is DevX's premium news subscription, where our expert reporters and analysts take you beyond the headlines, deep into the trends and institutions shaping the $200 billion aid industry. As well as all our news, you'll get access to conversations with global development leaders, resources to help you grow in your career, and a subscriber-only newsletter full of insider news and tidbits. See for yourself by getting a free trial today at devx.com pro. We had another piece this week, actually an opinion article about a YouTube uh, star. I think the most popular YouTuber uh, is Mr. Beast. I mean, probably a lot of you know Mr. Beast, uh, maybe like me through your kids, but he is uh, you know, wildly popular and uh, has over 200 million followers on YouTube. And he's known for doing philanthropic acts, but usually here in the United States where he's based. Uh, but this time he's done a video, which now has over 106 million views. I just looked before this this uh, episode and you know it's all about him putting in a hundred wells in Africa I think half in Kenya and I forget where the other ones are uh, but somewhere in the region and uh, we had an opinion uh, writer at DevX this week Jacob Stewart write a story basically saying like this is the worst example of uh, to use your terms about development impact George it's kind of the worst example where uh, he called it a philanthropic escapade and it evokes images of the white saviorism complex um, and everything you know surrounding Mr. Beast gets a lot of attention, uh, and so there's you know lots of videos uh, pro and con against against what he's done on YouTube. But but this this opinion article we wrote really gets into sort of the backstory behind why uh, at least this opinion writer thinks this is the wrong approach. I wonder if if either of you saw that opinion article and if you have a take on it. Uh, yeah, I saw that article. Uh, I was very sympathetic and persuaded by the author of the article. And this is just a the latest rendition of remember the um, the water pumps from from fair, from merry-go-rounds sure. that was going to solve the I water problem, solved, right? Yeah. Um, and then there's the shoe company that if you bought a shoe, they would give a, a shoe to the uh, in developing countries. And what did that do? That interrupt that that disrupted local shoe production. So 
the development field is always going to be facing challenges from well-meaning individuals who don't understand the circum fully understand the circumstances they're they're working in and i guess it's up to those like people at the at the uh, the opinion writer to to call them out and to try to redirect their well-meaning efforts to to better endeavors. Anna, what did you think? Yeah, it was a pretty scathing op-ed, and I think it's we got actually quite a bit of feedback from readers um, pointing out just how, uh, especially those who work in in wash issues, uh, water and sanitation issues, of how complex uh, water systems are, that it's not just a matter of, you know, putting in some wells and, and a town is, is hunky-dory. Um, you know, there's issues like lead leaching. Um, I think one of, to George's point and to your point on what's like the end game here, uh, part of it is sustainability and keeping these wells um, sustainable in the long term is a huge problem that people have been working years on. So, but to play devil's advocate, I think, you know, as journalists, we have to, it does at least shine a light on an issue. It's not like wash issues are very, you know, sexy outside of the world of development. So perhaps there there will be some lessons and some, you know, interest in people uh, learning more about the issue. But we also did hear from uh, like one journalist from Kenya that at least uh, because I believe they were. Uh, most of the wells were in Kenya and some school supplies were donated, but um, who pointed out that this this kind of puts a glaring spotlight on the government's failures. And maybe that instigates an, uh, an important conversation. So just to play devil's advocate, um, I do agree with a lot that's in the op-ed um, and it, it raises a lot of important points. But at the same time, the fact that we're having this conversation is also important. But Anna, and what you just pointed out, is the important role that you and Raj play because it wouldn't you this example wouldn't have put pressure on the government if the media hadn't reported it. Very true. Thank you. Yeah, no, it, that's that's certainly the case, and I think you know, it makes me think of Matt Damon um, and Gary White over at Water.org, right? Because they went through the same kind of an evolution in their own thinking, and they they began uh, by saying, "Hey, well, people don't have access to water; they need it." Uh, we'll, we'll go and you know dig wells. We'll do whatever it takes to get the water. And as they got closer to the issues, they realized, well, you know, there are indigenous companies and, and organizations that can do this, but the problem is really a financing problem. And in fact, the poor people who are, you know, uh, in these villages and need access to water, they actually do have access to water. It's just they're paying way too much for it. You know, they're they're paying money to water trucks to come to their community and to fill up their their jerry cans once a week or something they're spending money what they have is a financing issue they need somebody to give them credit so they have enough to get you know a, a permanent well put in or a tap going to their home and so that's kind of where water.org has really transitioned to over the last several years they become more of a finance facility for for clean water and are having a much bigger impact so i think you know george is so right we've got to we got to find ways to take the good philanthropic impulses that many celebrities have in particular, but directed toward things that we know work and away from the things that we know don't. Um, yeah, so there's a fascinating story and it's always interesting when uh, the world of, of YouTube celebrities and influencers kind of connects with with our own. Uh, what, what other stories did you see this week, Anna, that you want to talk about? Sure, so there's one, it's, uh, it's a bit wonky, so bear with me, but it has 
I think it's a good example of how so much of the 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 technical side of what development deals with has real life implications, uh, as we know. And uh, here, this story touches on the all important issue of of inequality, which we know has really exploded, uh, been exploding for years, but especially in the wake of COVID nineteen. So it uh, it talks about the World Bank's shared prosperity indicator, which is actually how the UN measures its uh, sustainable development goal. Uh, number 10, I believe, that is for reducing inequality by 2030. Now, the indicator, uh, it looks at the extent to which uh, the uh, incomes of the bottom 40% of a country's population is growing alongside GDP. But this obviously doesn't capture huge concentration of wealth at the top and extreme poverty at the bottom. So World Bank President Ajay Banga is trying to tackle this issue. He's reforming what's known as a corporate scorecard. But experts are, are worried that it will not go far enough. And as we point out in the article, uh, basically it comes down to if you can't measure something, uh, you know, in an accurate way, you can't deal with it in a in a substantive way. And so, again, it, it gets into all these kind of wonky details on how exactly to measure inequality. But uh, I highly recommend people take a look at it because, again, it's this real life issue that's exploding and there are numbers behind it. And we have to figure out how to measure it. And first of all, we love wonky. So uh, this is a good thing. Uh, we George, love nerding see- out. We love we nerding do. out. <laughs> so, George, did you see this piece? And, and what thoughts do you have about it? Uh, I saw that we we would never do wonky at Brookings, of course. Um, but the uh, what that article points out is that quote is right. Um, nothing gets done, nothing gets attention if you don't measure it. But there's so many different ways <clears throat> to measure something that it makes a big deal, makes a big difference on how you measure it. And what concerned me about that article is it's it sounded like the World Bank is going to set whatever target they they set at a not very ambitious level. And I was sort of persuaded in the article of why not use the indicator that's well known today, and that is the Gini coefficient, um, but set it at an ambitious at an ambitious rate. And the important thing there is not the absolute Gini coalition, but what direction a country is moving. Are they moving in the right direction to reduce inequality? Yeah, you know, it is it, a couple of things jumped out to me about it. First of all, on your point, George and Anna, about you know what you measure gets done. Ajay Banga is trying to make this really big shift in the World Bank culture because the way this has historically been done at the bank is to say, well, all of these things are important, so we'll just keep adding indicators. And so, in a way, like the SDGs, you know, which has 169 indicators, the World Bank scorecard has 153 indicators, um, and he wants to bring it down to 20. So I think the article kind of takes our readers inside a pretty active debate that's happening inside the bank. And, you know, if they get down to 20, the one or two that they have on inequality are going to really matter. If you think about the doing good report, uh, the doing business report, sorry, that the World Bank long published that got itself into a lot of controversy. That was really important because the whole world looked at it as a kind of scorecard about how easy it is to do business in each country. And and countries were really eager to see themselves higher on that list, to be known globally as, as a place where it's easy to do business. So it, it's kind of wonky, it's kind of technical, but it actually played out in a really big political way there. And this might too, because however a country is defined, 
you know, as highly unequal or as more equal kind of matters to their global image and to, to global investors. So, you know, this is a very political exercise, not just a technical one. And, and ultimately what we kind of get, get a peek into here is this debate happening inside and outside the bank. I mean, you've got some really prominent economists like Joseph Stiglitz and Thomas Piketty and others who are, who are lobbying actively the bank on, on this issue. It makes me think a lot about the, the kind of very common idea of a dollar a day poverty, which, you know, that, that's a random number, you know, but it came because at one point, I guess around 50 years ago or something, the World Bank looked at the um, around 20 countries in sub-Saharan Africa and looked at those countries' indicator of poverty, what their poverty line was, and said, well, let's just adopt that as the kind of global extreme poverty standard. And since then, it's been adjusted a few times. I think it's now $1.90, or maybe it's even gone up above $2 recently. Um, but the point is, it's arbitrary. It's random. And yet, it takes on a life of its own, kind of like the 0.7% target uh, for, you know, for the amount of uh, aid a country should give as a percentage of their gross national income. So these indicators really matter. And, and as you say, George, right now there's a debate about where you set that Gini coefficient target. And, and it might seem random, but wherever you set it, it's going to potentially have a big difference on how ambitious the world is on inequality. And, you know, Raj, trying to get the bank to cut down the number of indicators by 90% of what they have is probably one of the most difficult tasks the banks has. The bank, like AID, is spread all over the place and doing many different things. And how do you find 20 indicators that represent what the bank does? It's difficult to do, but it's important because when you have 150 indicators, you don't know what to look at. Um, but it, your point is you those, those 20 are really going to be important and they have to be very careful on how they select them. That's right. Well, maybe we can jump into one last piece here. There's a lot of content, as you can tell from this last week, uh, about the Green Climate Fund. Anna, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, the Green Climate Fund, is, as many people might know, it's actually the largest, the world's largest climate fund. Um, it helps finance both mitigation and adaptation, which is very important for lower income countries. Um, but it's long been been dogged by allegations that the process to apply is, is way too complicated. It's well aware of the problem. Um, its own evaluation unit uh, found it was a massive issue. So all the way back in 2017, I believe it introduced a simplified approval process. And our story talks to a lot of people who point out that it's neither simplified nor fast um, and kind of defeats the purpose of, of what the Climate Fund attempted to do. Uh, in some cases, the process took years where, you know, the project had moved on, essentially. It also talks about how it depends heavily on assigned task officer and so forth. And I think, you know, the, the general point you walk away with is not, it's a bit of a depressing picture. And I think it's compounded by the fact that we have a climate change emergency and that requ requires a sense of urgency and we have an example here where uh, such a critical player uh, in the development space is is slow to act and still slow to act, even though it recognizes the problem. George, do you have any takeaways from this story? You know, the, the takeaway is this is a common problem of all donors. Um, AID has, has a process that it takes a year or more to get a project up and running. 
Um, and to back to your earlier story on the cash transfer, it sort of highlights why we need a, a global conversation of where is cash best, cash to individuals, and where do public institutions need to provide public goods like schools and roads and health clinics. Um, but if we could be providing more of that assistance to cash, that would take some of the pressure off the processes of these large organizations. More money would get out there quicker, and maybe it would be easier to refine those, those donor processes. That makes a lot of sense. I, I've got you know, two thoughts in terms of the Green Climate Fund in general. One is, you know, I think about the GFC kind of having three phases, um, the GCF having kind of three phases. One is when it was first started, if you remember, there, it took like a couple of years before they could get any procurement going. And they were getting a lot of criticism because it, it obviously took enormous political effort to get a new fund stood up and funded. Um, but yet they were moving extremely slow. And that was kind of phase one. They got through that sort of early crisis period and actually started to do more procurements. They started to do more grants and they you know, accredited more organizations and money started to flow. So that was kind of phase two. But in that phase, money was flowing, but a lot of it wasn't flowing to these local groups uh, who were just not as well positioned to know how to deal with this big bureaucracy. And then we're now maybe in phase three. There's a new executive director who's been brought in, Mafalda Duarte. Uh, she just started, I guess, two or three months ago now in August. Um, and she was the CEO of the Climate Investment Funds at the World Bank. And so we'll see how she does. But she's been brought in really to reform all this. So, you know, it's not going to be an easy task as that story kind of paints. But I think it points to a second issue, which is, it makes you wonder whether the world should be creating new institutions like the Green Climate Fund to begin with, um, or should we sort of go back to the institutions we already have and make them work better? Because the amount of effort it takes to set up a new institution, give it new policies and procedures, and then optimize those is obviously significant. And uh, you know, right now the GCF needs needs funding. It went through this period where. You know, the Trump administration stopped funding it. Uh, you know, the U.S. pulled back completely. Uh, now the U.S. is back. But uh, it's still, while it's big, and I guess it's around $10 billion a year, um, it's still relatively small given the scale of the challenge. So it's, it's got to work effectively to, to be able to attract more donor funding in a time when donor funding is really scarce and under pressure. So I think, you know, Green Climate Fund and the broader climate story, as we are just two weeks before the COP in Dubai, uh, it's a big one, and it connects to many of the other topics we've already discussed today. Yeah, and it gets actually to the loss and damage fund and the controversy there over having it housed at the World Bank, which um, critics say gives the the major shareholders uh, outside influence, outsized influence, versus the fact that the you know the bank already has established mechanisms, so it might make the fund easier to disperse and, and in general just be set up. So it's an interesting debate ahead of COP where it's not just the Green Climate Fund. There's many other related issues of should we be standing up some of these entities on their own or use existing resources? And I was going to bring in the same example. And it's, and you know, do you set up a new fund that takes two or three years to set up? Or do you put it in an existing institution that maybe has a culture and processes that are, aren't quite amenable 
to the new objective of this of this new program, this new fund. And it'll be interesting to see if Bangor is really able to reform the the bank and make it a more responsive organization. Yeah, again, once again, all roads lead back to the World Bank. Um, you know, there's just so much pressure on Ajay uh, Bangor in this role because if the bank can become a much more effective institution, I think you'll see you know the next ideas for agencies being formed within the bank structure. Um, and, and you might not have seen something like the, the GCF get created. Uh, I mean, if you look at where a lot of the energy and momentum has been in the last couple of decades in global development, a lot of it's been around new institutions, the Global Fund, Gavi, you know, it's setting up these, especially public private institutions that, that go outside of the traditional system. Uh, that's gotten a lot of the energy and momentum, but I think the, the GCF story is kind of a cautionary tale. And hopefully, Mafalda Duarte will be able to turn it around because uh, certainly the world needs it. Um, well, listen, it's been great to, to chat with the two of you today. There's so much going on in our space, as always. Uh, a big thanks to you, George Ingram. Thanks for joining us once again. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. And Anna Gowell, great to, to talk with you, as always. Thanks as well. And, uh, and great to be with all of you who are listening in. Uh, you know, subscribe to the podcast and join us every week. If you are not a subscriber to DevX Newswire, which is hard to believe at this point, that's our daily free newsletter on all things global development, please go ahead and subscribe and uh, follow our coverage just coming up in a couple of weeks at the, at the COP28 in Dubai. I will be there and I look forward to, to reporting on the ground for all of you. Talk to you all soon. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.